This is a recording of Dr. Samir Gandesha at the Sunday, March 13, 2016 meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist podcast on Stitcher or iTunes. If you would like to help us produce this podcast and to make better recordings in the future, email info at bchumanist.ca. Well, well, thank you very much. Um, uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be here this morning. Uh, I'm especially delighted to see such a, an amazing turnout just as we've sprung forward. Uh, um, it's always a little bit more of a challenge um, uh, to uh, adjust ourselves once we um, set the clocks ahead. Um, before I begin, uh, I'd like to acknowledge, as I uh, customarily do, that uh, this event is taking place on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh nations. Um, and uh, really, I, I wanted to just start out in a kind of conversational way and then move on uh, to my prepared remarks. And the prepared remarks are really um, uh, part of a, uh, a larger essay that I'm working on. And um, I'd be very happy to hear your feedback because it's not really a specialized contribution. It is really meant for um, the general public. And I think it would be really great to hear uh, what uh, what you think about it. I myself am not completely convinced by my own argument. Um, so I'd like to uh, have uh, um, some, some feedback in, 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 and, and really try and make it uh, a little bit more convincing at the end of the day. Um, I would like to just begin by asking whether uh, you in this group um, have uh, had much discussion of the new atheism. My guess is you probably have, but um, I'd, I'd like to, to just ask and, and what people think the new atheism is. is any, can anybody give me a, a succinct definition of, of what that is? I think it's kind of a science-based uh, epistemology that's coming phenomenal from a lot of people who have uh, advanced degrees in science, mm-hmm. and then of course there are people who are pushing to get us pictures and great journalists and atheists. So there's kind of a merger between science and some great writers. Excellent. I think this is a very, uh, very good, succinct way of, uh, of putting it. Um, so the new atheists um, really consisted primarily four, uh, the four of the, the new atheist apocalypse, as it, as it were. I think they refer to themselves, in, in, or other journalists refer to them uh, as such. Uh, you have Richard Dawkins, um, Daniel Dennett, uh, Sam Harris, and as you say, uh, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who used to be really um, very much on the left, and then over the course of the previous two or three decades, has, has moved, I'd say two decades, has moved um, in a very different uh, direction. Um, one could say that one, one of the, the, the um, uh, events that has sort of prompted him to move in this, this, this direction, I, I would think, um, was the 1989 fatwa uh, issued against uh, Salman Rushdie. Um, and I think Hitchens was quite uh, appalled at, at, that, um, uh, at the response from the left, who, who were really kind of falling over themselves uh, not to upset anybody. Um, and I think that this, uh, 
this is an interesting uh, um, aspect of the background to New Atheism. Uh, one thing, though, that troubles me a little bit about New Atheism is that it is primarily, a, you know, as was said, um, epistemologically oriented. That is to say, it's based on a, on a theory of knowledge, and it basically wants to make the argument, it does make arguments, that um, uh, from a cognitive standpoint, that is to say, from the standpoint uh, oriented towards um, uh, uh, justifiable truth claims, um, religion uh, simply is wrong. Right? It's, it's um, uh, factually incorrect, and it's internally incoherent. Uh, and therefore, we just simply must um, move beyond it. Um, and what worries me about this is that um, it doesn't take into account, let's say, rather than the epistemological um, uh, uh, problem of, of, of religion, and that certainly is one dimension uh, of it, an important one, it doesn't look at the ontological dimensions of religion, and by that I mean um, ontology is a study of reality, uh, sub subfield in philosophy, um, metaphysics in particular is oriented towards understanding the nature of reality, and ontology generally fits under, under metaphysics. Um, ontology can also be understood in terms of um, existence, right? And you have figures like Jean-Paul Sartre as an as a, as a, um, existentialist, as a phenomenologist, as an ontologist, in the sense that he wants to try and understand the nature of human being. Right? So um, what worries me is that in the New Atheism there's not a, a, really a deep attempt um, to understand why it is that people are so driven to religious worldviews, religious explanations of the world. And I think if you want to move in a direction beyond those worldviews, one has to get to grips with what the appeal is, what kind of a need is being satisfied by religion. It's not simply a matter of giving better arguments, but also um, so at the level of epistemology, but rather understanding the the ontological conditions, right? Um, the ontological needs of people that lead them in the direction uh, of religion. And so, it, in some ways, the talk is an attempt to say that we can maybe try and pose these questions in trying to understand uh, the um, phenomena of suicide bombing, for example, as the most extreme form uh, of uh, religious adherence and uh, action uh, practice, in a sense. Um, and so I think this is maybe where the humanities tradition can come in to, to play a role, and that, that will be my argument. Um, but before I go there, I just want to talk about three figures who inform in different ways the argument that I make, who are really very key to the, the tradition of the modern humanities, um, and that's uh, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud. What do we know about Marx, quickly? Can anybody identify uh, a, a quote, for example, that might be specifically geared to religion from Marx? <laughs> yeah, but yes. The opium of the masses. Opium of the masses. That's always short. You have to take the full quote. Exactly. This is very good. This is very good. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, uh, Nietzsche, what did Nietzsche say? God is dead. Very good. And then... What about Freud? How did Freud? Rejection of a father figure. Rejection of a father figure. Okay, very good. Uh, you're very much up to speed here. So, Marx from his critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, uh, which he wrote between 1843 and 1844. Religious suffering is, at one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the side of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, 
and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of people. So Marx is trying to identify the way in which religion um, can't be, in a way, understood on its own terms, but rather must be traced to the social material conditions that give rise to suffering, which then gives rise to the need for an answer to that suffering, for a way to make that suffering in some way meaningful. Right? There's nothing worse than um, unexplained or unaccountable uh, suffering. Right? So that's Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, from the Gay Science, uh, published in 1882. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How should we com com comfort, our comfort ourselves? Um, the, the murder of all murderers. Um, how shall we com comfort ourselves the murderer of all murderers? Uh, what was holiest and mighty, the mightiest of all that the world um, has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off of us? Um, what water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Okay? Nietzsche. Basically arguing that what has held culture together theretofore, so back to the time of the, the early 19th century, was some idea of God. And now God has being undermined through various means, particularly through uh, modern science, uh, and we now confront a kind of crisis. I'll talk a little bit about that in, in my own talk. And then this is a lo uh, long quote um, from Freud, um, uh, just essentially arguing that religion is something that human beings come to adhere to for various reasons, because of the fear of, uh, of a of an overwhelming external nature, and also um, due to the fact that the civilization which is built up in order to, for us to deal with that uh, external nature imposes its own uh, forms of renunciation on us. And religion is a way of accounting for that. Religion ultimately is a way of dealing with human suffering, human finitude, or the fact that human beings uh, are, are mortal beings, uh, don't have in a more, an immortal soul, as religions have said, and even as Plato thought. Um, so, those are the quotes that you go through. The, no, um, just giving you a taste. Um, and th those are the three figures that, in, in different ways, inform what I'm going to say. Um, so, I'm going to now turn just to my, my text, and then um, we'll have a discussion uh, to follow. But while I'm going through this, if there's something that uh, strikes you as particularly um, uh, uh, not understandable, uh, you, you can ask for a clarification. But I, I would prefer the questions at the end. Um, so, it is a deep irony that the humanities are in the state of crisis that they are in today. For decades now, they have been on the defensive, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the so-called STEM disciplines, science, technology, engineering, and math. At first glance, it's not difficult to see why. Unlike the humanities and social sciences, STEM disciplines provide tangible improvements in the quality of human life. Science, medical science in particular, has helped to drastically reduce infant mortality and has prolonged life expectancy. Digital technology, specifically the invention of the microchip processor, has revolutionized life in a manner that rivals, if not exceeds, the impact of the Industrial Revolution uh, over 200 years ago. 
innovations in engineering have enabled us, uh, for example, to conquer time and to master space to a hitherto breathtakingly unprecedented uh, extent. Mathematics, of course, underlies each of these other three disciplines. Yet, um, all of these benefits have not been without their own specific costs in terms of the negative disruptions to human society. So there's a good side and a bad side. Some of these disruptions and dislocations can only, in a sense, be understood and addressed by the very disciplines that are in crisis, the very humanistic disciplines that are in crisis. And I mean by this, of course, uh, philosophy, history, uh, comparative literature, um, political science, anthropology, all of these social and, and humanistic sciences, right? the so-called soft sciences, if you will. Um, so these sciences, in a, in a sense, are, are required to understand some of these disruptions, but at the same time, um, uh, they have now been increasingly marginalized. So the crisis of the humanities has been uh, widely discussed over the, the past two decades or so, uh, but has been made no clearer, perhaps, than in Japan recently, in which the new conservative Abe government has issued, despite the opposition of the heads of many Japanese corporations, a directive to universities to jettison their faculties of humanities and social sciences and simply just get rid of them. Um, certain universities, such as the prestigious University of Tokyo, courageously have refused to go along, uh, but this has been the exception rather than the rule. It is a matter of it, it, is it a matter of time before the kind, this kind of drastic moves finds um, a wider resonance throughout the Western world? Um, already, already we have seen in our own province the Christie Clark government reorienting higher education around training, specifically geared to what we, um, to what was supposed to be a burgeoning LNG sector, as opposed to liberal arts education. Um, of course. What was not taken adequately into account was the question of what happens when such sectors experience a downturn, which is what is happening exactly now. Um, and what then are those who have, have specific training geared to that industry to do? One reason why CEOs of major corporations, as those I just referred to, reference uh, in Japan, favor humanistic or liberal arts educations is, of course, that employees who are educated rather than trained in liberal arts is that they are able to adapt and change to what is often a, a rapidly um, uh, um, fluctuating and fluid uh, economic and social environment. All this notwithstanding, um, what could be some of the implications uh, of this marginalization of, of the humanities to address some of the, the key challenges facing uh, our societies. I say that the crisis of the humanities is ironic because these disciplines have never been more important just at the moment of their imminent demise, precisely because they apparently contribute little, if anything, to economic growth measured by rising GDP, uh, etc. If the value of STEM disciplines is by and large undeniably tangible, that is, um, that of humanities and social sciences, um, the former in particular, is intangible, which is to say um, not easily measurable. Right? So the STEM disciplines, their, their impact on society is tangible, is clear, concrete, measurable, whereas 
the impact and the contribution of the humanities in particular um, is much less so. In, in fact, uh, it's, it's doubtful whether it is uh, tangible, measurable um, at all. But that doesn't necessarily mean not valuable. Okay? We can't equate measurable and uh, valuable. I would argue, in fact, that the humanistic disciplines are essential to understanding the sources of social, political, economic, and environmental conflict today. Conflict that seems to be spiraling out of control, and that must be resolved if humanity is to, I think, have a future. And very much central to these conflicts are alternative and often incompatible answers to the question of how ought human beings to live their lives. This is what political philosophers call questions of the good life. In the Western tradition, broadly speaking, there have been two basic understandings of the good life, symbolized by which two cities? Uh, <laughs> possibly, that's an interesting thought. Um, well, symbolized by the cities of, uh, of Athens on the one hand and Jerusalem on the other. Um, the first stands for life lived according to reason and what uh, Plato called dialectic. And the other, a life lived according to revelation. Although if one looks closer, the lines between the two are somewhat blurry, um, not least because uh, the writings of um, the early Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle in particular, were taken up and appropriated by the church through the writings of figures like Augustine and Aquinas, respectively. So that, that, that line is, uh, is a little blurry. And even if you look at that Plato's own writings, they can't simply be understood as strictly rationalistic. They do have a, a mystical transcendent dimension to them, um, which we could certainly go on to discuss. So the ethical question that addresses the nature of the good becomes politicized in various ways. State and non-state actors can and do seize upon these differences so as to exacerbate conflicts to their own instrumental ends. The humanities in general, and political philosophy in particular, can help us to bring um, the often implicit conceptions of the good life um, um, into view in such a way that the sources of conflict can be located and addressed. Right? This is one of the, those in, somewhat intangible, but nonetheless very valuable contributions of something like political philosophy, which lies at the center of the humanities. My, my background and training is in political philosophy. Surprise, surprise. Um, what unifies the humanities and some of the social sciences is the concern with, broadly understood, the interpretation of meaning. According to the great 19th century philosopher who had such an impact on Karl Marx, uh, Garrick um, Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, historically and intersubjectively constituted meaning lies at the core of a distinctively human form of life. In other words, what separates human beings from other mammals is that while the latter, by and large, simply desire objects, food and drink, and, of course, sex. Human beings desire desire itself. In other words, human beings desire recognition from other human beings. Our identities are constituted through a process of recognition from the very first days of infancy, as object relations psychoanalysis tells us, look, looking at the early relationship between the mother and the infant. Um, so this, this process of recognition starts very early, in the very first uh, hours of, uh, of our lives, till um, uh, the end of our lives. 
Hegel's point is that one is only really a father, a mother, a son, or a daughter in the context of the family insofar as one is recognized as such. One is only an employee or an employer within the economy only if one is recognized as such. One is only a legitimate member of a political community, that is to say, a citizen, only if one is recognized as such. In the latter two examples, and this impinges on, uh, on, on the, the first example as well, um, each of them have some relationship to the structures of law too. So recognition isn't just a uh, subjective psychological um, phenomenon, but is one that becomes, as Hegel would say, objectified in forms of law. For example, the recognition of property, the recognition of such and such as the owner of such and such property that is then understood legally. Right? So these forms of recognition play such a key role. So the, the, the role of meaning in human life is absolutely key. And this is what separates the human being from other uh, forms of animal life. And we could list a, a, a number of different interpreters of, of Hegel's work along with Marx, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who I mentioned earlier, um, uh, Franz Fanon, Axel Honneth, who's a German uh, thinker, and uh, more recently, the indigenous scholar who's based at UBC, um, Glenn Coulthard. These are all um, uh, people influenced by Hegel, in particular, the idea of recognition. It follows that uh, when different seemingly irreconcilable cultures meet, the difficult work of intercultural dialogue, interpretation, and translation needs to be done in terms of creating the conditions for genuine mutual understanding and mutual recognition. So recognition isn't just something that happens between individuals, within the family, within the, uh, the, the scope of uh, the economy, or within the political community, but it also happens between communities, between states, within uh, a larger international framework. Right? Um, so it's key that the work of, of mutual understanding, mutual, mutual recognition, happens at this uh, higher level as well. So the Frankfurt philosopher and uh, Frankfurt School philosopher and musicologist Theodore W. Adorno describes the process of recognition uh, in the following way. And I quote, and unfortunately I don't have the um, quote um, up on a slide to show you. Um, but anyway, here goes the quote: "We become free human beings." not by each of us realizing ourselves as individuals, according to the hideous phrase, but rather that we go out of ourselves and enter into relations with others, and in a certain sense relinquish ourselves to them. Only through this process do we determine ourselves as individuals, not by watering ourselves like plants in order to become well-rounded, cultivated personalities. Right? So the key thing is we truly become who we are not in some Rousseauian state of nature where we're separated from everybody else and live in this perfectly authentic and free condition, but rather we truly become ourselves in our relations with one another. We become who we are through uh, our, our relations, through our dialogue, through our understanding, uh, uh, mutual meaning constitution with other, um, other individuals in different contexts. So as every diplomat knows, mutual understanding is a precondition to diplomatic and political alternatives to violence and conflict. Hegel's conception of individuals is 
constituted through relations of recognition has been understood along the lines of what the most important living Canadian philosopher, who is? Charles Taylor. Exactly right, Charles Taylor, um, calls a politics of recognition, which can be expressed in the form of, of a question, and that is, how is it possible for each of us to genuinely affirm one another's individual and collective differences publicly without misrecognition, without misrecognizing, overlooking, or indeed denying them altogether? Is it possible, for example, to be recognized as a Quebecer and a Canadian simultaneously? If so, how might one balance a commitment to the Constitution, to the Charter of Rights, on the one hand, and reaffirm the specific goods, the importance of the French uh, language in that province, for example, um, on the other? Alternatively, the central question with which we're seeking to grapple, uh, with which we're um, seeking to grapple with today, as not just today in this room, but today in, in, in our current situation in this country, is how can the historical injustices per perpetrated against indigenous communities, particularly through residential schools, here to so-called killing the um, Indian in the child, be understood and acknowledged in such a way that may point towards um, genuine reconciliation between um, Aboriginals and non-Aboriginals uh, under conditions of long eluded justice and equality. This is a key kind of question that we were confronting after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and its findings. Perhaps the most pressing question that humanities and, and social sciences can contribute to answering, or let's put it this way, if not answering, then at least um, sharpening the question, um, is, is the following. How is it possible to understand the motivations that might lead young men and women to engage in the kinds of attacks that we've recently witnessed in, in Paris in the past year? And not just there. I mean, there are many such uh, examples. And that is namely um, suicide bombing. This is simply not the kind of question that STEM disciplines are equipped to pose, let alone come anywhere near to offering a plausible answer to this is not a question, in my view, that can um, be properly answered by evolutionary biology either. Um, and again, the reason for this is because it involves this question of meaning, the interpretation of meaning and the question of mutual understanding, mutual recognition, or the lack thereof. Right? So that's, that's going to be key to my, my argument. Of course, one way of answering um, the question, or one way of understanding the attacks, is, of course, politically, uh, that this um, is a response to the U.S.'s involvement in the Middle East since the first Gulf War um, in the late 80s, and more specifically, um, the toppling of Saddam Hussein, which has created a vacuum in Iraq and has intensified the confessional or the sectarian struggle uh, between Sunni and Shia populations. One can also point to the clear double standard in the West's um, uh, uh, support uh, of Israel as the quote-unquote only democracy in the region, etc. Um, moreover, many commentators have rightly indicated the manner in which the U.S.'s indiscriminate and frankly reckless drone attacks against supposed al-Qaeda operatives um, throughout uh, the region have also played a key role in fueling the fire of Islamist anger, extremism, and radicalization. The argument, of course, is that the terror attacks are an attempt to open up a new theater in the war that has been raging in Iraq and um, uh, now in Syria over the past five years. 
that the war could not indefinitely be confined to the Middle East, but would find its way eventually to Europe and North America. Uh, and 9-11 would, would be taken as a, a symbol uh, of this opening of a, of a new theater. Um, and there is some truth to this. Uh, Daesh, uh, the mocking Arabic name for ISIS, meaning those who trample underfoot, uh, has emerged in the context of war and conflict, and now embodies the aspirations to establish um, uh, or re yeah, to reestablish the Ummah, or the community of believers within a single caliphate, um, kind of a, uh, uh, Islamic theocracy, that would serve to counterbalance Western power globally. However, what is often lost sight of in such an account um, is the specificity of the tactics deployed. There's been quite a long history of anti-imperialist struggles in the modern period. Um, we can point to any, any number of them, for example, I mean, as the central one was happened in 1857 in the Sepoy Rebellion against the British Raj. However, none have taken the current form to blend uh, a, certain, a certain kind of terror tactics, namely suicide attacks, um, and hitherto unprecedented brutality that's had, that has had a, a spectacular quality to it, namely it is performed precisely for the Western media, uh, which then um, helped the, the group further disseminate um, terror. So it was like a vicious circle. In other words, it's necessary to, in other words, it is necess necessary to explain the particular nature uh, of the ferocity of the response um, that, that was absent in liberationist struggles, anti-imperialist struggles in the 60s and 70s, and even really in, in the ANC's uh, uh, struggle against particularly um, uh, noxious uh, apartheid uh, regime in, in South Africa. So, what is going on? Why uh, uh, do we see the, the, the predominance of suicide bombing type attacks? It is also important to recognize that the perpetrators of Paris attacks, as well as those of the London and indeed the 9-11 attacks, were Western-born. The ringleader of the recent Paris uh, attacks in um, November, Abdelhamid uh, Aboud, was a Belgium of Berber Moroccan descent, who, like the other attackers, grew up in the Belgian town of Molenbeek. Obviously, what comes into play is a profound sense of solidarity with Muslim brothers and sisters who are suffering throughout the world, um, as is repeated quite frequently. What such a view misses is the specific form the extremism takes, which is to say, it's a particular ascetic reading of Islam no doubt deeply influenced by the strict fundamentalist Wahidi interpretation of Sunni Islam that prevails in Saudi Arabia, with strict regulation of sexuality, um, that of uh, women in particular, food, alcohol, art, and music. What we see in this interpretation of Islam then is an, is an intensification of what Friedrich Nietzsche calls the ascetic ideals that lie at the heart of most so-called great world religions. So ascetic ideals, basically ideals um, of self-denial, the denial of the senses, the denial um, of the body through different, different very rigorous regimes. For um, example, it's in the monastic order, vows of silence, etc., very austere living conditions and so on. However, it is not simply in the denial of sensuality that we find a manifestation of the ascetic ideals, but rather these ascetic ideals reach their logical conclusion 
in the complete obliteration of the body in the act of suicide bombing. Right? So the, the claim here is that the very logical, logical conclusion uh, uh, of the ascetic ideals of all religions um, is the um, uh, obliteration of, of, of the body as such. Um, this is a simultaneous denial of the world of the senses and a mythological affirmation of the hereafter in which the martyr will enjoy the company of 72 virgins and live forever in eternal erotic bliss. How are we to understand this phenomenon? So this is also not just uh, the, uh, uh, an Islamic story, but also can be found in, in Judaism, expected, and certainly in Christianity. The idea that um, one it lives a, a life of self-abnegation, of self-denial now, but one will then reap all the benefits eternally in heaven later. So this is a, a common way in which monotheistic religions certainly um, uh, uh, privilege the hereafter over the, the world uh, that we can see, touch, feel, the temporal world that we, we are in presently. So it could be argued that um, what we see in the suicide bomber is a crisis of, of modernity that is highlighted by those who have been displaced and dislocated by the contradictory processes of capitalist globalization themselves. Now, these terms we can go into in the discussion period. We don't have time to sort of unpack them now, but we'll, we can come, come to those later. Um, it's with these figures that I would suggest um, we see what I call uh, a paradox between uh, an empty liberal freedom on the one hand and the substantive idea of a meaningful or good life on the other. Um, and this I'm drawing from the, the, the German sociologist Max Weber. He's the, the one who, who famously held that it wasn't, the, as Marx argued, the contradictions in the mode of production that lead to social transformations, or particularly the transformation feudalism to capitalism, as Marx held, but rather it was a particular kind of uh, transformation in religious belief. So the Reformation played the key role in the origins of capitalism. This is a so-called Protestant work ethic that drove the, um, the rise uh, of, of capitalism. He was arguing directly against uh, Marx. So what he's identifying then is this tension between freedom and, uh, and meaning. Um, and this is what Nietzsche famously called nihilism. By nihilism, Nietzsche meant that, quote, the highest values devalue themselves. Nietzsche argues that the old religious values cannot maintain themselves in light of their own contradictory imperatives. For example, the injunction to tell the truth on the one hand, um, uh, and the adherence to revealed truth on the other. This is clearly, at, at some point, a contradiction. Um, the imperative to tell the truth leads to a logic of scientific discovery and innovation, which is directly in, counter, uh, in, con in, in contradiction with the um, notion of adherence to revealed truth, um, the evidence of things not seen, uh, and, and so on. Nihilism, in the passive key for Nietzsche, meant that um, Few had the courage or fortitude to create new values to fill the void left by the me mechanistic worldview of modern science that destroyed the meaningfulness and purposefulness of life 
at the existential level. Really, at the beginning, I talked about the ontological dimension. So this is what I mean. Um, uh, life at the existential level or ontological level. And simply grasp the straws uh, of religion um, in crisis after the death of God, which I'll just showed you that, that quote. Occasionally, they would proclaim their belief, however, with particular fervor or enthusiasm. So that's also part of the passive nihilism. Nihilism in an active key, however, and this is Nietzsche's uh, own position, entailed the strength to bear the trauma of such uh, a death of God um, and to create new life-affirming values indexed to the sensuous reality and needs of the body rather than life-denying transcendence. We talked, he talked about that, or he identifies that um, uh, in the, the quote that I showed you. Right? We must ourselves become gods, right? That is to say, in the past, God had legislated values. Um, uh, God had, uh, in, in a way, made the world meaningful. Um, and we had passively adhered to those meanings. Now what Nietzsche is saying is that we ourselves need to create meaning. We need to create values for ourselves. Right? It's a kind of radical humanist sort of position. So Nietzsche himself drew the term nihilism from the Russian writer Turgenev, who himself was responding to anarchist bombings directed against the oppressive Tsarist regime um, in the context of Russia's own modernization in the last third of the 19th century. In Turgenev's novel, Fathers and Sons, nihilism, personified by the figure of the materialist uh, student Bazarov, uh, medical student, interestingly enough, um, and signified the reduction of uh, nature, human emotion, indeed artistic expression, um, sensuous beauty, etc., to abstract me mechanistic processes that came increasingly to be understood through the lens of naturalistic um, materialism. So, Bazarov is a figure representing naturalism. The logical conclusion of such naturalism in, in Turgenev's view was a violent response to the old order, an attempt simply to destroy it, uh, because it really served no purpose. Um, Nietzsche here anticipates what many consider to be the meaning-destructive role of cognitive science today in reducing human mind, human consciousness, and ultimately human freedom to deterministic um, biological, biochemical processes um, occurring um, in the brain and in external nature. Terrorism represented in Russia an equally reductive response to the inequality and irrationality of the ancien regime, that little regime. Um, so the idea of terrorism uh, in perhaps its earliest modern manifestation was tied to a discussion of nihilism, interestingly enough. And this, this is something that really warrants a little bit more more uh, uh, discussion. One way of understanding the problem of nihilism, as Nietzsche took it up, is in terms of this seemingly unresolvable tension or trade-off um, between liberal or negative freedom on one hand and meaning on the other. I already mentioned that, and I, I want to deepen that thought now a little bit. In the West, the formal freedom of the individual, which which we, of course, we need to defend very, uh, uh, very, very fervently, very strongly, uh, arises on the basis of a profound crisis of established orders of meaning that takes their bearings from the real truths of the Abrahamic religions, um, uh, what, what Weber would call charismatic authority, and also traditional authority, things that are simply done the way they're, they're done, because they've always been done this way. Right? Um, and we could also you know, look at other religious traditions, other contexts, such as the Indian one, uh, uh, which Hinduism has played such an important role. Um, and you have the same kind of tension there. 
um, as well. And, and a lot of those tensions are, are themselves actually playing uh, out today. We can talk about the Indian situation uh, as well, where uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, uh, academic freedom are really under attack, precisely because they challenge some of the, the basic nostrums of, of, of Hinduism, the caste system, and, and, and so on. Um, so this was the, the idea that the world was inherently meaningful insofar as the world was in some way uh, divinely ordained. An individual situated within these traditions had limited freedom, by which I simply mean the capacity to author uh, her own fate, to write her own script, for, ver for a variety of um, sociological, metaphysical uh, reasons. Yet her life was, in fact, full, perhaps all too full, of meaning. Right? So in the old, again, the, in the Anshar regime, in the old order, uh, life is very meaningful, but not very free. Life from its inception to its end, and indeed beyond, had a purpose that was often uh, tied inexorably to conditions of um, labor, to social hierarchy, the notion of a great chain of being, etc. For the modern middle class, Western, uh, Western emancipated individual, the situation is exactly the adverse. As a result of what Eric Hobsbawm calls the age of revolutions from 1789 to 1848, the individual is progressively liberated from any kind of tradition um, that could be said to limit her freedom. Those with a certain level of affluence can choose from seemingly uh, limitless sets of different ways of living one's life. And this becomes today difficult to um, uh, distinguish from passive consumerism. Right? Um, now today, we, we don't choose philosophically between different um, uh, uh, accounts of the good life we simply choose uh, different lifestyles to consume and, 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 and to purchase and to consume. This is our, um, arguably what, what our world is uh, uh, today. And indeed, one can now, uh, all other things being equal, even choose one's own gender and sexual identity with the aid of biotechnology as a consequence of which meaning itself enters into a profound crisis. I'm not saying that these are uh, bad things. These are very liberating things. I'm trying to say that this is how far liberation can go. And um, it does then create, though, uh, questions of orientation, uh, no pun intended, questions of, of how one, one lives one's life. Um, that it seems that traditions that had once oriented our, 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 our ancestors, our, 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 our grandfathers and forefathers and mothers, um, are no longer in place. And we're, in a sense, cut adrift. That offers two or many distinct possibilities, many different possible responses. People can take this as a real crisis, people can take this as a real opportunity. And so uh, that, I think, question remains uh, open. As the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre famously stated in his lecture, Existentialism as a Humanism, existence precedes essence. We simply exist, we simply are, then we make of ourselves what we will, not the other way around. There is no pre-given telos that we uh, uh, must uh, aim for or orient ourselves uh, towards. We are left then with the difficult burden of fashioning ourselves rather than situating ourselves in larger meaningful contexts that transcend us, that precede us and will survive uh, us upon uh, our death. Um, this throws some interesting light, I think, on the claim made by Westerners, um, citizens of the U.S. in particular, and now coming back to the question of terror, that they hate our freedom. Well, it's not that they hate our freedom in particular, rather it is that the articulation of freedom in liberal terms um, 
as it is a, a, a narrow conception of freedom that seems aimless, empty, and decadent to them. Whether um, we are con condemned to freedom, as Sartre said, um, but, we do not but we do not live under conditions in which that freedom could be properly and meaningfully uh, exercised. This is the liberal conception of negative freedom, the ability to choose in the absence of impediments, as opposed to the genuine capacity for each called the will to power to participate in making meaningful decisions about our lives, um, indeed, in creating new values. If our contemporary relativism makes all forms of life equally valuable, then none of them are valuable at all. Ennui sets in. This is perhaps uh, what explains the attraction of, of the certainties of fundamentalist religion, but also right-wing populist movements um, that in the West are proving themselves increasingly attractive to growing numbers of people. This is how one can make sense of the phenomenon, for example, of Donald Trump. Um, many of his followers have been hit hard by globalization and are bewildered as a result, are enraged, and identify with Trump's apparent resolve um, and lash out against scapegoats who symbolize the sources of their misery. I'm just going to conclude in, in a, just a minute now. It is a seemingly unresolvable crisis that suicide bombers seek to resolve. Combine the crisis of meaning brought about through a perceived or vacuous, empty liberal freedom described above, with structural exclusion from the very possibility of redeeming some of the promises of material happiness and fulfillment that capitalism offers everyone, but actually delivers to very few. Um, and with racism and neo-colonial realities in which young Muslim men experience humiliation, both on the global scale, but also in cities like uh, Molenbeek and Paris and London, and you have a recipe for massive disaffection and ultimately radicalization. Suicide, um, uh, the suicide bomber seeks in vain to reassemble the broken unity of meaning and freedom in a single act of extreme violence. And it is in this act, um, uh, and it is an act that is sure to beget more violence, both in Iraq, Syria, Pakistan, Afghanistan, as well as more reprisals on the streets of major Western cities um, on innocent Muslims, which itself will no doubt further fuel the fire of extremism. You see the, the vicious circle here. Um, today we clearly stand at a threshold. There seem to be only two alternatives. The first is a continuation of this vicious circle of more terror attacks under increasing militarization, the authoritarian undermining the civil liberties through C-51, for example, um, and ultimately a kind of proto-fascism. The second is a strengthening of genuinely democratic forms of self-governance in which new life-affirming rather than life-denying values could be constituted. Thank you for your attention.